Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. President Trump calls it mission accomplished in Syria. Tonight, new details on the mission and what it actually accomplished. New questions about what, if any, larger strategy it served and whether 105 U.S., French and British cruise missiles later, the people in Syria and across the region are any safer tonight. Also, we'll talk more about the historical resonance of those two words, mission accomplished, which the president used naturally in a tweet. A perfectly executed strike last night, he writes. Thank you to France and the United Kingdom for their wisdom and the power of their fine military could not have had a better result. Mission accomplished. The stated aim was punishing Syria for using chemical weapons and destroying their capacity to do so in the future. We'll look at whether that mission was accomplished tonight and what, if anything, comes next, as well as the continuing questions about proof, evidence that justifies the strike. Namely, did Bashar al-Assad use a nerve agent on his own people? We have correspondents and experts across the board tonight. A lot to cover. Let's begin with Barbara Starr tonight at the Pentagon. So what's the Pentagon's assessment of the mission, Barbara? Good evening, Anderson. Well, you know, there's that old military saying, we hit the targets we aimed at. And that is what was accomplished last night in these strikes. Uh, the U- U.S. military, the French, the British, they hit all the targets they aimed at, by all accounts, three sites that were Bashar part of Bashar al-Assad's chemical weapons program. That mission was accomplished, but was the broader mission accomplished? We are told that the military objective is to issue a stern warning to Assad not to use chemical weapons on his own people. Will this deter him? Is this a message that he heard? I will tell you there are a lot of people with a lot of doubt about that. The Russians may not want him to go any further down this road, but will he stop using his chemical weapons? All, by all accounts, he still has a considerable inventory, a capability. He has the delivery mechanisms, the aircraft, the helicopters uh, that can launch barrel bombs. So while the broader mission of hitting the targets uh, was accomplished, was the message, did this ascent, was it really received? What was really achieved here very much remains an open question. Yeah, I mean, do we know what the next steps are, if there are, in fact, any next steps? Because last night in his talk uh, on television, the president talked about, you know, military, diplomatic, economic uh, moves. Um, are there next steps? Sustained effort, according to the president, a one-shot deal, according to the defense secretary. So this is now the key question. What is Trump's red line in Syria on chemical weapons? If there is another chemical weapons attack, perhaps with chlorine, and there have been many of them, the U.S. hasn't responded to those in the past, will they do so now? If there's another nerve agent attack, will the U.S. do so? One of the key things right now on next steps is to calibrate this very carefully. The U.S. succeeded last night in not drawing the Russians in, at least not for now. There was a lot of concern that the Russians might react, that this could all escalate. Big worry at the Pentagon here last night. 
And for now, at least, there is no reaction from Moscow on the military front. A lot of angry words, but no military moves by Moscow. And that is a very worrisome next step they are going to try and avoid, Anderson. Yeah. Barbara Starr, thanks very much from the Pentagon. President Trump spent part of the day speaking with Britain's Prime Minister, Theresa May, as well as French President Macron. Seen as uh, Jim Acosta has the latest night from the White House. So, Jim, the president is seeming very confident today with the results of these strikes. Uh, that's right, Anderson. And you showed the president's tweet uh, from earlier today when he said it was mission accomplished in Syria. I talked to one uh, Trump advisor earlier today who uh, w- was really sort of reacting with surprise and some disgust that uh, the White House would allow the president to tweet something like that because it conjured up all of these memories of George W. Bush landing on the aircraft carrier in 2003 and declaring uh, mission accomplished in Iraq when that war dragged on for another eight years. Uh, Anderson, I will tell you that there was a conference call with reporters earlier today. Senior administration officials indicated that it may not be mission accomplished. They were saying if Syria does go ahead and use these chemical weapons again on its civilians, that it does run the risk of uh, taking another hit uh, from the U.S. and its allies. Uh, And that, of course, uh, raises the question, well, perhaps this wasn't mission accomplished. And then the administration has to get to the other question, which is, what is mission creep? And can they do this every time? They can, can they continue to hit the Syrians every time they do this? And what happens with the deconfliction with the Russians? Can they stay deconflicted, as they as they uh, like to use that term over at the Pentagon, uh, if the U.S. has to go back and hit Bashar al-Assad's forces again? Has the White House had anything else to say tonight about the strikes? Not at this point, no. The one thing that we heard today was uh, really going after the Syrian government, the Syrian regime. Uh, Nikki Haley, the U.N. ambassador, uh, she was speaking earlier today, uh, talking in some pretty uh, stark uh, terms, saying that the president is locked and loaded, essentially, if the Syrians were to dare uh, to use chemical weapons again, and that when the president draws a red line, this president draws a red line, uh, he keeps it. That's obviously a, a reference to Barack Obama and, and the criticism that Barack Obama uh, did not enforce his red line. But of course, Anderson, when you use terms like locked and loaded and saying that the president is going to enforce his own red line, uh, that really raises the question as to whether or not the Syrians, the Russians, the Iranians in that region might be tempted to test this president again. And that obviously is going to put the president back in the situation that he was in all this past week. I can tell you from talking to various officials here at the White House, there was a pretty vigorous debate that was going on between the president and his advisors, General Mattis over at the Pentagon, as to how serious, how, how you know, widespread these airstrikes should be. And it seems as though General Mattis, who wanted a, a more uh, measured response, won that argument in the end. And it gets back to this question of mission creep. If the Syrians use these weapons again, how does the U.S. respond? And how entangled does that get the U.S. in the situation in Syria in the future, especially when the president in the last couple of weeks has been saying he wants to pull the troops out of Syria? Uh, That does not appear to be the strategy right now. Uh, With this kind of uh, activity going on, it seems the U.S. forces will be committed there for some time. Anderson? Uh, Jim Acosta, appreciate it tonight. Thank you. Last night's strike may have been about twice the size of the one last year, but it's just a small part of a larger conflict, obviously, that's taken hundreds of thousands of lives. Nick Payton-Wallace joins us now from northern Syria, where the war goes on. Nick, first off, what are are the Syrians on the ground saying as far as their reaction to the strikes last night? 
Well, I think much uh, we've seen has been a bit of, of those regime loyal areas to show that life kind of carries on as per normal to some degree. We saw Bashar al-Assad sauntering into work over nice, clean, shiny marble floors, holding his briefcase as though nothing had really changed his daily routine at all. They've shown pictures of rubble uh, on state television, particularly of Barzay research facility. That's the area in sort of under the uh, aerial defences, the substantial ones of uh, the capital of Damascus that was penetrated, a research facility there. But the Syrians claim uh, that in in fact, the Homs research facility escaped largely unscathed. That's clearly absolutely the opposite of what the Pentagon showed through aerial satellite pictures. But I think a feeling certainly amongst regime loyalists, this could have been an awful lot worse. Uh, certainly, I think, a red line drawn around chemical weapons. But that really is the extent of the red line, frankly. And words like mission accomplished and locked and loaded are great for international and domestic uh, U.S. consumption, but mean little here after six years of intense conflict. This clearly is a sign that if the most barbaric uh, weapon uh, known to man are used by Bashar al-Assad. That may elicit a response, but you can go on killing your people with conventional weapons, frankly, indefinitely. Anderson? The, the other question, of course, is, you know, uh, what sort of uh, weapons are, d- would trigger a U.S. response in the future? Uh, sarin is obviously one thing. Chlorine attacks uh, have, been, uh, have occurred uh, frequently without any sort of response. Yeah, I mean, this is the outstanding question of uh, the last week or so. It's been absolutely clear from Nikki Haley that she says the US, UK and French have, quote, analysed the samples or substances from here. Now, it appears from senior US officials talking that much of their diagnosis of sarin being used stems from observing uh, the videos of individuals and the symptoms that they had, kind of the muscular spasms, the twitching uh, of people who were exposed to the gas in Douma uh, last weekend. Now, we've heard, too, that samples tested suggest maybe a mixture of chlorine and sarin. It was sarin's use that sparked the Han Sheikun bombings back in April last year. The 59 Tomahawk missiles and Barack Obama's red line was crossed by its use in 2013. So are we talking about a new moment here in which the use of chlorine possibly sparks international uh, response? Well, the US itself says it's counted 50 separate instances of the Syrian regime using chemical weapons since the war began. Are we now into a moment where every time a strange gas or substances smelled, there's a risk of cruise missiles being launched. That is a worrying new development potentially in the war. You may argue the U.S. is leaving that question open to put pressure on Damascus to stay away from anything remotely resembling uh, a gas or a corrosive substance in war here. Uh, But it may also simply be that the actual concrete information about what was used last weekend is still not concretely known enough uh, to put around publicly. Anderson? Yeah, Nick Payton Walsh. Thanks very much. Be careful. Here to help fill in the military picture for us now, retired Army Major General James Spider Marks. General Marks, thanks for being with us. Take us through the, the targets hit that we know about by the U.S. and coalition forces, if you would. Absolutely, Anderson. Let me, let me start with what was briefed earlier today, what we surmised, surmised last night. Clearly, there were three target sets. They were right here at the Barza Research Facility, which was critical. I think that was probably top of the priority list in terms of destruction. And the briefing today, I might add, indicated that these were facilities that were destroyed. It's critical when you look at them. It's not that they were degraded. It's not that they were limited. They were destroyed, and that's what's most important. We'll get into some more detail. And clearly, two strikes up here in the vicinity of homes, which were the storage facilities, which is where the chemical... Um, actual munitions exist. So when you're looking for a shiny thing that's going to be used, that's where they would be located. Developed, researched here, and ready for delivery from these locations. Let me walk you through the very... Yeah. Please go Go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to walk you through the specific 
targets if you want me to, Anderson. Yes, please. Yeah, okay. First of all, this is imagery before of the Barza Research and Development Facility. Let me highlight, as you can see, the entire complex is about like that, pretty sprawling. Inside, I want you to pay attention to these three buildings right here. One, two, and three. That's where the targeting took place. After the strike, this is what happened. As you can see, very precise targeting in this very specific area going after those three buildings. The rest of the facility, as you can see, is untouched. That's the nature of these strikes that took place. The next target was Holmes, and there were two, two strike packages, or at least three, two locations that were used in the Holmes area. I want you to pay attention to these three buildings right here. Also, these storage facilities you can see right here, this location here. What I, what's interesting is this is where the strike took place, not here. Very clear that after the strike, again, damage to the point of destruction there, these areas untouched. Obviously, these were not significant to the development and or the delivery or the storage of those chemical, chemical weapons. And then if you look at the next facility in Holmes, pay attention, Anderson, if you will, to this location. Not these buildings or these vehicles. And again, it's very, very interesting when you look at the before imagery, then you look at the after imagery. Here's what happened on the strike. Very clearly, this area was damaged. This was an underground facility. Looks like there was that's where the penetration took place. Same vehicle located here, same vehicle lo located here. I'm sure these folks were awakened by the blast, but they were untouched. That's the nature of a pre precision strike. And obviously this was a coalition, a U.S. military along with French, along with British. Uh, is it known at this point what sort of resources came from each country and where? It is, Anderson. Let me, um, let me walk you through that. Very critical when we look at what the alliance was able to bring to bear. The location is kind of routine in terms of where the U.S., the French, and the U.K. patrol. We routinely have a presence there. So what we had... If you walk through all the assets located here in Dubai, but the assets from the strike were here and here. And if we were going to go through them, Tomahawk missions, missiles, about 120 missiles in total up to this range. And then we had B-1s, and from the U.K. we had uh, the Storm Shadows, and from the French we had Scalp. These are just proper names of the type of missile. This is joint air-to-surface standoff missile. What that means is this B-1 was not over Syrian airspace for the strike. General Marks, appreciate it. We'll check in with you uh, later. Coming up next, how the strikes fit in with a larger strategy, if in fact it does. Later, new revelations about what the feds found when they raided Michael Cohen's office and hotel in reaction from Stormy Daniels attorney Michael Avenatti. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. 
Now, whatever you think of the airstrikes on Syria, they don't exactly reflect a long-standing strategy uh, from the president or a consistent tone. Some or all of it might just reflect the kind of day-to-day nuances more than one person at a time articulates policy. We'll talk about it shortly. In any case, you'll recall that as a private citizen, Mr. Trump counseled against any involvement uh, in Syria. Back in 2013, he tweeted in all caps, again, to our very foolish leader, do not attack Syria. If you do, many very bad things will happen. And from that fight, the U.S. gets nothing. Once in office, the president launched airstrikes and troops, but then just a couple of weeks ago said this. By the way, we're knocking the hell out of ISIS. We'll be coming out of Syria like very soon. Let the other people take care of it now. Very soon. Very soon. We're coming out. We're going to have 100 percent of the caliphate, as they call it, sometimes referred to as land. We're taking it all back quickly, quickly. Uh, but we're going to be coming out of there real soon. Well, then, of course, came the attack on Duma and the president's tone changed. It turned outright belligerent, not so much toward Bashar al-Assad, but Vladimir Putin. Russia vows to shoot down any and all missiles fired at Syria. Get ready, Russia, because they will be coming nice and new and smart. You shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it. Intentionally not, that tweet and others gave Russian forces plenty of time to get out of harm's way. And as Spider Mark showed us, the strikes were tailored to avoid hitting Russian assets or personnel. Yet last night, the president promised sustained action, diplomatic as well as economic and military. A few minutes later, his defense secretary said last night's strike was it. Today, his U.N. ambassador said perhaps, but only for now. Last night, we obliterated the major research facility that it used to assemble weapons of mass murder. I spoke to the president this morning, and he said if the Syrian regime uses this poisonous gas again, the United States is locked and loaded. Of course, the day began with the president's mission accomplished tweet, which drew attention whether or not the president anticipated the reaction. We simply don't know. What does seem clear is that the message on Syria has varied. The question is how much of that has to do with the changing facts on the ground or perhaps a bit of good cop, bad cop diplomacy and how much reflects a lack of a true strategy, which was the criticism also of the Obama administration. Joining us now is Mike Rogers, former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and CNN political analyst Gloria Borger and David Gergen. Chairman Rogers, was the mission in Syria accomplished by the strikes last night? Well, I mean, in military parlance, uh, I'm sure it met their objectives. And I think that's what he was talking about. I'm not sure it weighed too much into the mission accomplished. I think to the broader strategy in Syria, I think that's a whole nother question. That, that has been the thing which has bedeviled, frankly, you know, the Obama administration as well as this, a broader strategy in Syria. Oh, completely. And one of the things we've this this different messages coming out of different segments of the national security team of the White House really isn't very helpful. Uh, gearing troops up to, to go into Syria to back up uh, forces on the ground has been changed when the president said we're getting out and we're pulling out. That changes uh, command uh, attention and energy on the ground there for what what would be the the ground solution uh, and then saying well we'll go back in now the one consistent thing i will say is last year chemical weapons use 59 tomahawk missiles uh, were used this year and the one important thing that i think might be missing in this even though the, I, I agree there's no greater strategy they did clearly demonstrate they the united states military demonstrated uh, they could hit a target inside heavily fortified damascus with russian anti-air weapons not too far away from where Bashar al-Assad lays his head at night. I think if they take advantage of this, apply a strategy, which I hope is coming, I think they could get a lot out of this. Yeah, David, I mean, is it clear right now to you what the mission is for the U.S. when it comes to Syria beyond 
degrading or, or preventing them from using chemical weapons? Hmm. Not at all. I do think, Anderson, in the immediate aftermath, the big sense a lot of Americans will have is, uh, is relief. Uh, given the volatile, brash, uh, and uh, often dangerous-sounding president, there were so many people in this country who have been scared that he's going to get us into a big war and use weapons you know, without restraint. And instead, in this case, he did listen to his defense secretary, uh, Mattis, General Mattis. Uh, he showed caution. And I think I think for a lot of people waking up, thank goodness we didn't get he didn't do it any harder. He sent the message. But he still now has to go back to work. And with Mattis and others, uh, he's got to figure out what the strategy is. Is he still going to pull out? Many of his advisors feel that if he if, if he follows through and pulls out of eastern Syria, where the Americans, where we Americans have sort of dominance on the land, uh, that it will rapidly become a vacuum and, and be filled up with not just Syrian troops, but a lot more fighting. And it will be very uh, destructive to the Kurds. He seems to be still on that path toward pulling out. Uh, and that so that that has some long term negative ramifications. Yeah, Gloria, I mean, were you surprised that the president chose to use the phrase mission accomplished today, yeah. given, you know, the the obvious reference to, you know, the blowback George W. Bush received when he appeared in front of the banner using the same phrase, you know, regarding the Iraq war, though the president himself at the time, George Bush, yeah, did not use that phrase. It has a certain ring to it, doesn't it, Anderson? Even Ari Fleischer, who was George W. Bush's press secretary at the time, tweeted uh, um, I would have recommended ending this tweet not with those with those two words. And I think it shows you that, you know, the president is not thinking about history when he when he did that and the kind of blowback that uh, that George W. Bush got. And, but it does give us this sense that the president is kind of saying, OK, we did this and maybe now it's over. The question that I have is. Uh, what do we do uh, if Assad uses barrel bombs? Does, is that okay? And, and uh, chemical weapons are, are different. What if our allies, and I think, you know, to David's point, a lot of people I've spoken to have some relief that this was not done unilaterally, that this was done with France and with the, and with the UK. But uh, what happens if uh, there's more and we decide because the president because the president decides I don't want to get involved in anything that's sustained, that he's not going to be a part of something else, even though he talked about uh, saying we would sustain this. I, I think the question is the predictability of the president. And the question also is the disagreement within his own national security apparatus between somebody like a John Bolton, for example, and uh, the secretary of defense, James Mattis. And so yeah. we don't know how these issues are, are all going to get resolved. Yeah, I mean, Chairman Rogers, last night, the message from the Pentagon was this wave of airstrikes is over. Today, the U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said that the United States is is locked and loaded. Um, I mean, do you think those are mixed messages? And just in terms of 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 a longer term strategy, it doesn't seem like uh, there is any appetite of, for this administration or, frankly, from the last administration to uh, to try to have some sort of sustained effort to really end the, the Syrian civil war or certainly have regime change. Yeah, I, I think the broader strategy here, uh, Anderson, is th they have not gotten this right. The Obama administration didn't get, get it right, and I don't right. think Trump's getting it right. I will say I am, I'm not as worried about what I saw today. I think the defense secretary came out and said, hey, this is a one-off. That wasn't to uh, Assad 
uh, it was to uh, Putin, uh, that, listen, we're not going to expand it. We don't expect you to come mm-hmm. back at our folks. Then what Haley, I think, did, the, the uh, U.N. Uh, ambassador, she came out and said, listen, uh, if you do it again, however, we will come back. That piece, I thought, was them just kind of correcting the record and setting the stage on what their position is on the use of chemical weapons. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty limited. And the strikes here were very, very limited to that. The broader strategy, again, I hope they take advantage of what they showed they could do last night, the U.S. military and and the Trump administration, by trying to push a diplomatic solution. And that shouldn't include, I think, as uh, David said, to pulling out, you know, summarily pulling out in the east of Syria. I think that would be a big mistake. We, it would create more chaos than it solves, and it would show that they don't have a strategy other than I'm leaving. And we've tried that before, right. and we paid a big price for that. Yeah. Chairman Rogers, Gloria Borger, David Gergen, thank you. Up next, U.S. senior officials say they are confident that both chlorine and sarin gas were used in the attack outside Damascus last weekend. We're going to talk to Dr. Sanjay Gupta about what chlorine as well as what sarin can do to the body when we continue. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com slash CNN. Well, it bears repeating that the stated reason for last night's strikes was a poison gas attack by Bashar al-Assad on his own people. But since video, which we'll show you in a second, first emerged, the question has been what sort of gas was actually used and do the U.S. and its allies have any evidence? Well, today, senior U.S. officials revealed today in a call with reporters that they are confident that both chlorine and sarin gas were used by Syria on the Damascus suburb of Douma one week ago today. They say they have the video evidence. And before we show you some of it, we do want to remind you this can be tough to watch. Children and adults gasping for air. Aid groups say at least 48 people were killed last weekend. 500 others displayed symptoms similar to exposure, exposure to toxic gas. I want to get some medical insight, though, on these poisons. Chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins me tonight. Sanjay, can you just explain what it is about sarin that, that's so particularly awful? I mean, what it does to the body? Well, um, this is sort of like a pesticide on humans, uh, Anderson. This is something that's extremely lethal, something that works really fast. And I think the best way of, of putting it is that, you know, your bodies are constantly getting these signals that basically tell your motors, for example, uh, to turn on and to turn off. That's constantly happening. What this does, it sort of sticks everything in the on mode. So everything just, just it goes on and stays on. Your eyes start to water, your nose runs, your, your lungs start making fluid, your muscles start to seize up. It is very painful. Ultimately, the diaphragm, which allows you to breathe, that also becomes paralyzed, and that ultimately would cause someone to die. So it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. And what I've described, this sort of uh, this pesticide-like effect on the body can happen within, within minutes. Why is it so harder to detect when it's used? When you look at sarin gas, if you actually look at it, it's a liquid. You know, you'd see it in a liquid form. When it is used as a weapon of terror like this, it is put out there, it starts to basically turn into this gas. It is colorless. It is odorless. It's not something that you can obviously detect just, just with the naked eye. So you wouldn't even know you've been exposed until you start to have symptoms. That makes it really, really frightening. And also because it starts to vaporize quickly, it can be hard to, to find enough to actually test. When you do test it, you have to find that those samples quickly, and, and sometimes it'll break down and you gotta find the byproducts quickly. All that's just a lot of testing, and, and typically what happens is you just don't have time for that. You're, you're in a dangerous situation, you can't get those samples. 
What about chlorine? How did the effects of chlorine differ from sarin? Chlorine um, can cause some, some similar symptoms, but for a totally different reason. What, what chlorine does is when it hits um, water and, or in some of the uh, areas of your body that have, are more water-rich, it'll essentially turn into hydrochloric acid, uh, which, is, which is terrible, obviously. You can imagine breathing in this chlorine gas. It is interacting now with the back of your throat, your mucosa, where some of that water-dense tissue is, and it's turning into acid. It's awful. It's, it's painful. It, it uh, can obviously get into your lungs, and you can have some of those same breathing problems. It might be confused initially with sarin. But again, with sarin, you know, you, your pupils will constrict, your nose will run, your muscles will seize up. There are going to be clearly different symptoms, more symptoms, quicker symptoms with sarin versus chlorine. How do you, I mean, how do you treat people who have suffered from an attack? Well, one thing you got to keep in mind is that if it gets on the skin and gets on the clothes, then even the people who are now treating someone who've been exposed to, to sarin are also at risk. So right away, if you suspect a sarin attack and, you know, if, uh, the medical community, the doctors and nurses who are the first responders have to immediately do things to protect themselves, make sure it doesn't get onto their skin, that they're not breathing in, number one. Number two is you've got to basically try and reduce as much of the exposure that the individual has, taking off their clothes, um, basically scrubbing them down, making sure you get all the sarin that you can off of them. There are antidotes. Uh, Anderson, you may remember when we've been covering conflicts overseas, we're typically given packs, including uh, a substance known as atropine. And atropine is an antidote that can be used for sarin. It has to be given very quickly. And so if you don't have it, obviously, it's, you're not going to have it. But even if you have it, you may not suspect, you may not know you've had a sarin, a sarin attack. So it may be too late by the time you use it. Mm. Yeah, it's just awful. Sanjay Gupta, I appreciate it. Thanks. You got it. Thank you, Anderson. Well, coming up, a closer look at the Tomahawk missiles that were used in the strikes on Syria. We'll take you inside the factory where they're made and show you why they're so powerful. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved. And uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The Pentagon says 105 missiles were launched in the strikes against Syria, including dozens of Tomahawk missiles launched from ships and a submarine. Gary Tuckman got a look inside the factory where Tomahawk missiles are made. Here's what he found. The Tomahawk is considered the world's most advanced cruise missile. It's been used in combat more than 2,000 times by the U.S. Navy, from Syria to Sudan to Serbia. And all of the new Tomahawks come out of one factory, this one, in a city and state we've been asked not to reveal for security reasons. The 20-foot-long Tomahawks are manufactured by the Raytheon Company. Kim Ernzen is one of Raytheon's top missile executives. And this is the final configuration before it goes out the door to our customer. In this facility is where we do the integration of the rocket motors and the warheads, what we call the energetics elements of the missiles. Um, other components and sub-assemblies come from our other factories located here. And then we do the final assembly here, test it, fuel it, and get it ready to go out the door. How soon will these be going out the door? Uh, in the next couple of days. In this factory, 14 Tomahawks are about to be shipped out. Workers here are performing what they call a roll test to make sure there is nothing loose inside the missile and that everything is connected properly. Historically, Raytheon's contract with the Navy is for at least 196 missiles each year. Tomahawk can fly 1,000-plus uh, miles, um, so it can get launched from a ship or a submarine. Um, it can go up and loiter, as we call it, where it can fly around in a um, figure-eight 
So in other Pardon? words, once it's sent off, if you want to change where it's going, Absolutely. it loiters, it just goes in a circle and you it figure does. out where It can be redirected um, and rerouted to a specific target. The Tomahawk has been around since the 1980s, but this is the newest version of the missile, manufactured since 2004. It can be used for up to 30 years, and Tomahawks that haven't been used come back after 15 years for recertification and upgrades. So this is the um, rocket motor that launches it out of the vertical launch system. So it is what propels it out. Um, so when you see the footage of an, a missile coming out of a ship, um, it is the plume that gets it out of that vertical launch. And as you move more up toward the front is the navigation, communication system, and then ultimately up here at the very end is the warhead, and it is a 1,000-pound warhead. With their GPS guidance, the Tomahawks can strike within mere feet of a target. They are launched from ships or submarines. If it comes from a submarine, it will then swim through the water. The rocket motor will take it up out of the water and then we will eventually get it up into um, the airplane mode, which is where it will fly and perform its mission from there. So it swims and it flies. Swims and it flies. The price tag per missile? About $1.1 million. Each Tomahawk weighs about 3,500 pounds. So when 66 of them were fired towards Syria, that was about 231,000 pounds of firepower. People who work here tell us this isn't just a job. It is an honor to be able to work for the men and women in uniform and to be able to supply them with a competitive advantage when they're put in harm's way. And that's what we do. We make sure that they have an unfair advantage out in um, theater. So that's what you say, that this gives the U.S. military an unfair advantage. Absolutely. And we want to keep it that way. Gary Tuckman, CNN. Uh, we'll have more on the Syrian strike in a bit, but back in the United States, another storm is brewing. The president's lawyer, Michael Cohen, under criminal investigation, has been ordered to appear at a hearing on Monday. Well, the latest on that next. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst, Richard Jefferson, on Bleacher Report's The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The president's lawyer and fixer is in a bit of a fix himself. You could say Michael Cohen has been ordered to appear, as you may know, at a hearing on Monday as lawyers for him and for the president try to keep prosecutors from using some of what FBI agents seized in that raid on Cohen's home, his office and a hotel room. CNN Shimon Prokopes joins us now with the latest. So what's the judge hoping to learn from Michael Cohen in federal court on Monday? Because she had a lot of questions on Friday that apparently his lawyers just couldn't answer. Yeah, that's exactly right, Anderson. And that's why she ordered Michael Cohen himself to appear in court, because she grew increasingly frustrated that these attorneys were not able to get the answers to the questions. Uh, essentially, what she wants to know is who Michael Cohen's clients are. You would think it would be something simply uh, Michael Cohen can answer, can tell his lawyers, and that he'd be able to relay that to the court uh, so that the government can use that as a way to check uh, who privilege could apply to in this case. It's this whole argument in this case that the FBI should not have access to these documents because of privilege issues. And you know, Anderson, quite frankly, it seemed like even his attorneys, Michael Cohen's attorneys, were having a hard time getting that information out of him. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue that this stuff is covered by privilege if you can't name who your, uh, your clients, actual clients are. Cohen's lawyers, I mean, they're trying to prevent material that was seized in the raids from, from being used uh, in court. Do they want it all prevent, stopped or, or, I mean, how do they, how do they want it determined? 
Right. That's exactly. That's a great question to answer. And that, that seems to be the issue, right? They're, they're claiming in their court documents that there are thousands of documents that were removed from Michael Cohen's possession by the FBI. The government is saying not so much the case. Uh, they feel that essentially pertains to privilege. And even the government there, the prosecutor said that Michael Cohen's attorneys are exaggerating that number. The judge seemed to agree because she asked the attorneys, you're saying that there are thousands of documents that pertain to privilege. Where are you getting getting that from? Where are you getting that information from? And the lawyers, quite simply, did not have any answers for the judge. Uh, the government, Anderson, views this as a stall tactic by, by Michael Cohen his attorneys. They want to get to work here, the government said. The FBI, they have these documents, they have these information, uh, they have his phones. They need to get to work and start reviewing this. And they feel the, Michael Cohen's lawyers are just stalling right now. Shimon, we'll we'll see you on Monday. Thanks very much. The lawyer for uh, Stormy uh, Daniels was also at that hearing yesterday. The raids on Cohen included a search for records related to a $130,000 payment to Daniels right before the election to keep her quiet about the alleged affair with with the president. Stormy Daniels' attorney, Michael Avenatti, joins me. Michael, you indicated that yesterday that uh, Stormy Daniels may join you in court on Monday or Tuesday for, for a hearing connected to the, the federal government's raid on Michael Cohen's uh, office. Um, is, is this something she needs to be there for or is it something you just want her to be there for? Well, we haven't decided, Anderson, whether she's going to attend on Monday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Uh, that's the time of the hearing. Uh, it's really ultimately going to be up to her as to whether she wants to attend She feels very passionately about this case and wants to ensure that these documents are handled appropriately and also wants to ensure that the American people understand that her goal is to make this process as public as possible as it relates to the disclosure of facts and information. So it's a pretty important issue for her. CNN's reporting that the FBI seized recordings that Michael Cohen made between himself and Keith Davidson, uh, who is an attorney who represented it at one time, uh, your client Stormy Daniels and also Karen McDougal. Do you have any avenues to actually obtain those recordings from the federal government? Is that something you can get access to? Well, we could subpoena those uh, recordings if they exist from the federal government. Uh, you know, Anderson, we are very, very concerned about uh, with each passing day, the information that is coming out relating to Michael Cohen and others. If we discover that, in fact, Michael Cohen recorded um, either my client or her attorney, Keith Davidson, we're going to be bringing another action likely or another claim against Michael Cohen for wiretapping. Were, were you, I know you were in court yesterday for a hearing related to the, to the raid on uh, Michael Cohen's office. What, what stood out to you uh, from that hearing? Because clearly I mean, there were a lot of reports about uh, how irritated the judge was with Michael Cohen's attorneys and their lack of answers. Well, two things stood out, Anderson. First of all, um, the judge posed a number of simple questions to Michael Cohen's attorney relating or attorneys relating to his law practice, uh, and they were not able to provide the most simple answers in response to those questions. The judge became fairly frustrated and ultimately ordered Michael Cohen to court on Monday at 2 o'clock. I find it ironic that at the same time, they were not able to answer those questions. The judge actually asked them if if they had contact with their client, and um, they hedged. Uh, It was unclear uh, whether they were able to actually reach him to have him participate or not. Meanwhile, we're all in court doing what we need to do, and then it comes out that at the same time, Michael Cohen is basically sitting uh, with, I guess, his friends uh, enjoying cigars uh, on the Upper East or West Side of New York. Very bad, bad scene 
for Michael Cohen. I don't know what this guy is thinking. If he's going to skip court, he shouldn't be photographed or videotaped uh, out on the stoop, if you will, uh, with his buddies. I want to ask you about Cohen's involvement uh, with a Republican donor's payment to a Playboy Playmate who he had gotten pregnant uh, who the donor had gotten pregnant. What do you make of the fact that Michael Cohen used the exact same pseudonyms, David Dennison and Peggy Peterson, to identify the parties in your case as he did this payoff? I mean, legally, I guess it doesn't matter, but it, does it seem odd to you? Well, it does seem odd. You know, I broke this story on Thursday night by way of my uh, Twitter, and then the Wall Street Journal reported it um, on Friday. To be fair, it's unclear whether it was Michael Cohen that utilized those pseudonyms, uh, whether it was his idea for that in that instance, um, or uh, Keith Davidson's. Uh, it's unclear at this time. But I did want to go back to one thing, Anderson. The other thing that stood out to me from the hearing that took place on Friday in, in federal court is as follows. Michael Cohen's attorneys have stated that thousands, if not millions, of pages of documents that they maintain are attorney-client privileged were seized by the FBI. Um, they also claim that those documents may span 30 years. To put that in context or to really put a fine point on this, Anderson, Michael Cohen right now is radio active. I'm going to repeat it. Radioactive. Anybody that had any contact with this attorney, this man, for the last 30 years, their information may now be in the hands of the FBI. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be very, very nervous. And the more contact you had with him during that time period, the more at risk you are. And we know who the person is that had the most contact, and that's the president of the United States. Hmm. Michael Avenatti. Appreciate it. Michael, thanks. Thank you. Well, up next, the strikes in Syria will have the latest from the Pentagon, from the White House, as well as Moscow, after the president proclaimed on Twitter, mission accomplished. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.